My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Black Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow within their communities. My name is Dr. Jacoby Wilson. In today's episode, we're going to discuss drum roll voting. I know many of you voted, but we're going to talk about why it's important that you just voted and the connection between environmental justice and voting, the connection between environmental justice and Civil Rights Act. And we're going to talk about EPA's brand spanking new Office of Environmental Justice and external civil rights and what this new office means to communities moving forward, particularly those communities that have been dumped on, made invisible, folks dealing with petrochemical operations, right? Folks dealing with incinerary, you know, across the country, folks dealing with landfills in the deep south, folks dealing with refineries in Cancer Alley, people dealing with cattle feedlots, right, in California, folks dealing with hog farms in Iowa, North Carolina, People dealing with pipelines in our plain states, our indigenous brothers and sisters dealing with mining impacts. Those communities, indigenous, tribal, people of color, low-income, rural, urban communities. What can we do with this new office to help them individually, collectively? So today, we're going to be joined by one of my dear friends, colleagues, mentors, peers, one of the icons of the EJ movement, one of the most powerful voices in the EJ movement, on that Mount Rushmore of environmental justice, Vernice Miller Travis. Now, before we get to talking to Vernice, I really want to, you know, let y'all know again. Those of you who maybe new to the podcast, like who I am. I grew up in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I grew up near a major highway. I grew up near a sewage treatment plant. My mom always reminds me, like, son, don't forget the landfill. Like Mama said, grew up near a landfill. Also grew up near this kind of rock crushing facility near the outskirts of Vicksburg, Mississippi. My father was a pipe fitter, so he worked at a lot of the sort of dirty energy facilities. He worked at actually this nuclear power plant called Grand Gulf. It's about 20 miles down the road from my house. It's near Alcorn State, one of our great historically black colleges in the country. And, you know, growing up in Mississippi, you know, growing up near these hazards, it really got me interested in the environment. I also saw myself as a little you know, uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, you know, born into the woods. You know, I, I, not, I lived that, not that far from the river, right? But what got me in environmental justice was really trying to understand these environmental pollutants that people are exposed to. I grew up with alopecia areata. I still have alopecia totalis. So I want to understand as a young person what stressors led me to lose my hair, right? And so I had an opportunity to attend a historically Black college, Alabama a and i a proud bulldog, right? And we went to a conference in 1995 at Elizabeth City State University uh, as part of a fellowship, EPA fellowship. Just a shout out to EPA. I wouldn't be here with a lot, a lot of funding as an undergrad and grad student from the US EPA. And at that Elizabeth City State conference, this eco-conference Elizabeth City State, which is also known as historically Black college, I had an opportunity to meet Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis and Dr. Robert Bullard, who's known as the father of the EJ movement. So when I met them at that conference, I knew I would be environmental health scientist. I knew I would be a researcher activist. And from there, I went on to get training at UNC Chapel Hill under the great Dr. Steve Wing, one of the mentors who passed away some years ago. 
but I learned about doing work with communities, for communities, by communities, doing science that serves people. So at my center, the Center for Community Engagement and Environmental Health, we look at issues of environmental, climate, and engine justice, and we use community-engaged research to really address these issues. We do what we call empowerment science. How do you use science to build people's capacity to study and understand their local issues? Let me say something, y'all, you know, whisper to y'all. You don't have to have a PhD to be a scientist. You just got to love science and use the scientific method. You don't have to have a degree to be a scientist. The idea is if you live in these communities and being impacted by these issues, you have the lived experience. You're contextual experts. As one of my mentors, Dr. Milton McClain, says, Jacoby, we live in the community. You're the real expert. So I try to bring scientific tools to the people to help you tell your stories and can lead to action. So we do empowerment science and we do liberation science. The idea is to liberate communities from being poisoned every day by these toxicants, right? By these hazards that they live with. These locally wanted languages, incinerators again, power plants, landfills, highways and byways, things that pollute. When you live in a community with these hazards, your body is being used to absorb the pollutants. You are internalizing the externalities, environmental, social, economic, right? So we try to do liberation science to liberate folks from environmental injustices, environmental racism, environmental apartheid, and environmental slavery. So the purpose of this podcast is to do a deep dive into the environmental issues impacting communities across Maryland, you know, the D.C. region, across the country, and talk about what are the parts of the environment, those drivers of negative health outcomes, and what we need to bring into our communities to make them better, to make your block count, to make your neighborhood count, to make your community count. So I want to talk now about voting. Oh, y'all just voted. I'm an alpha. We have a program that says a voteless people is a hopeless people. So I hope all of y'all recently voted, right? But why is voting important to folks of color, to the Black community? Well, we know historically we haven't had voting rights. We've not been treated as a full person, you know, a personhood in this country. You think about slavery, Jim Crow, the various amendments that made us whole to be whole people, right, in this country. And then the ability to be able to vote. You think about women's suffrage movement and giving the, the right to vote to women as well. Folks are still fighting against this system of oppression. And voting is one of your most powerful tools to impact change. So let's talk about the civil rights in this country. There's a connection between the civil rights movement and the environmental justice movement. I can say that the environmental justice movement is a child of the civil rights movement. We wouldn't be here in our movement without the civil rights movement. So you're thinking about legislatively to get civil rights for folks of color. I'm going to tell you a little about the timeline of our efforts to make this happen in this country. Congress considered and failed to pass civil rights legislation every year from 1945 to 1957. During Jim Crow, the civil rights movement was emerging. You had, you know, folks like SNCC, you had sit-ins. You think about the emerging efforts of folks like Rosa Parks and other folks are being lynched, right? Think about all these things that were happening in the country. And folks in the civil rights movement were fighting for these rights. 1957, 1960, Congress passed limited civil rights acts, made a few gains. 1957, act established the United States Commission on Civil Rights in order to investigate 
report on and make recommendations to the president on civil rights issues. So you have all these folks fighting for civil rights. Again, protests, sit-ins, folks going down to places like Mississippi, where I'm from, to help this fight again against Jim Crow, the Klan, and these other efforts to basically hold folks of color down, hold Black people down, hold us down from moving forward as a country and making progress on civil rights, on human rights. Then you had all this work of activists, advocates fighting. You had the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, the nation's premier civil rights legislation. So as a result of this act, discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin was outlawed. Equal access to public places. Remember, y'all, for those of you who may not know, people a little bit older, yeah, it's separate but equal, right? You had the white water fountains, you know, water fountains of black people. You had separate pools. We had separate schools. Here we had schools were desegregated and the right to vote was enforced. Before voting, largely, you think about the rights that got passed, but then you think about voting. Voting at the time largely left out non-white men and women, regardless of color for much of American history. So you had this voter registration drive at the Black Expo, Chicago, Illinois, took place just eight years after the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed. So that happened in 1973. So even when you got these acts passed, we still had to fight for them. So you think about the history of the Voting Rights Act. Let's go back in time. What led to us getting this act passed? And I talked about it a little bit already. So you have Plessis versus Ferguson that condone racial separation. So you think about separate equal kind of principles. African-Americans were attempting to exercise the right to vote, but they faced legalized state discrimination, such as poll taxes and literacy tests, the push against folks of color voting today. Then, of course, as I said before, you had a lot of violence. You had lynching. Other intimidation tactics were used. It was not until the 60s that the federal government actually stepped up to really protect folks' right to vote. So as a result of, again, speeches, sit-ins, you know, marches in Selma, right, across the, the Pettus Bridge, you think about bombings that occurred in churches in Alabama, clan attacks on people in, in southern cities, and the fact that the media started showing us. And then you think about, again, the voices of folks like, you know, Dr. King and other leaders in the civil rights movement. You saw action as it relates to voting rights. The 24th Amendment abolished poll tax. And then finally, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed to protect the Black people's right to vote. This was an expansion of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then you also had the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which is really well known as the Fair Housing Act, which prohibits discrimination concerning the sale, rental, or finance of housing based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. So it's a lot of movement, a lot of progress uh, that occurred in the 60s, you know, in the 50s, right, where people were fighting against Jim Crow to get civil rights and get voting rights. But now if you fast forward today, we're dealing with the new Jim Crow, where we're trying to go backwards in time. And you've seen some of what the Supreme Court has done uh, around the Voting Rights Act. You see what's happening with states gerrymandering. You see what's happening with states trying to pass bills to suppress the right of folks of color, our, our Latino brothers and sisters, other people of color to vote. As of March 24th, lawmakers in 47 states have introduced more than 360 bills with provisions that restrict voting access. Again, it's like the new poll tax, everyone, 
according to New York University a School of Law's Brennan Center for Justice. Let's look at Georgia. Governor Kemp signed an anti-voting rights bill in law. Senate Bill 202 imposes new voter identification requirements for absentee ballots, allows state officials to take over local election boards, curbs the use of ballot drop boxes, and makes it a crime. I'm going to say this again, y'all. Makes it a crime for people who aren't poll workers to approach voters in line to give them food and water. Now, y'all know you have these long lines. You got elders out there, pregnant women, children with their families, people getting ready to vote. You got to be able to give people water and give people food. That's just, again, a human necessity. It should be a human right to get that while you're waiting in these long lines. May 6, 2021, again, another Republican governor, DeSantis, signed a restrictive voting bill. Senate Bill 90, imposing stricter voter identification requirements for voting by mail limits who can pick up and return a voter's ballot and prohibits private funding for elections, among other things. So you have this assault on participatory democracy. Again, y'all, to make a democracy work, you have to participate. But there's assault on this. And it's a consistent with the long history of political machinations intended to ensure power for white men. Think about white privilege, white supremacy, and keep it at a distance for everyone else, particularly Black Americans. So you see this history of racism as it relates to civil rights, this history of racism as it relates to voting rights. So your vote does count. Your vote did count. That's why it's important that you just voted. And you've seen what's happened in this election in the state of Maryland, the power of the vote. And I come to ask you to go all out to get every Negro in this county registered to vote. Then after getting people registered, that is another, even greater responsibility. And that is to go out to vote in the primary. So again, I'm Dr. Shakobi Wilson. I'm with the Center for Community Engagement and Environmental Health. We are here talking about my block counts, how your block counts, how your neighborhood counts, how your community counts. You know, we talked about the civil rights movement, how important voting is, right, and the Civil Rights Act is. Now we're going to talk about this new Office of Environmental Justice and External Civil Rights. In September, we had the 40th anniversary of the historic PCB landfill fight. That's polychlorinated biphenyls. That was the foundation that was that birthed the environmental justice movement. PCB-laden dirt was being trucked into this poor Black community in Warren County, that's in North Carolina to be specific. And it was this fight back in 1982 where folks rose up against this landfill. Now, that fight is beginning this movement. This past September, we went back to that county, EJ Lewis from across the country, to be there with the EPA administrator to talk about the new Office of Environmental Justice and external civil rights. It was very important to have this office signed into existence at the birthplace of the EJ movement. And right now with us today, I want y'all to get ready for this. We have Ms. Bernice Miller-Travis, an icon of the EJ movement, a leader of the EJ movement, one of the folks who, who got us to where we are with fighting for environmental justice and climate justice and injustice. So, Bernice, can you share with us the importance of this new office as it relates to environmental justice and how it would advance EJ issues. 
to get to racial, social, economic, climate, and help address other critical issues in our communities. It's historic, but it's also the fulfillment of organizing and strategizing and legal advocacy and public policy advocacy, congressional advocacy, you name it, and communities who are impacted by environmental threats, communities of color, tribal communities, low-income rural communities, urban communities, have been pressing EPA for 40 years to live up to their mandate to provide equal protection before the law for every community, no matter where we were, where we were physically located, what we looked like, what our incomes were, that they were obligated to provide equal protection before the law. And we just didn't see that happening. And it's happened sporadically over these past 40 years, but the creation of this new office of environmental justice and external civil rights is the fulfillment of that commitment that communities have been asking for for so long to one, understand that the foundation of these challenges and these problems that we face is because we are people of color and we are being actively discriminated against. Historically, contemporarily, we have been treated unequally before the law because of who we are, the color of our skin. And for decades, EPA didn't want to touch that. The federal government didn't want to touch that. Other federal agencies didn't want to touch that. And because they didn't want to touch that, how does race inform environmental threats and hazards? States and local governments didn't do it either. So it just left us out here fighting for ourselves and fighting for our own lives. And with the standing up of this office, it means that there's a recognition that these issues are intimately intertwined and connected, that you cannot resolve environmental justice without resolving racial discrimination, language discrimination. You must look at them as two parts of a whole in order to actually resolve the problems. And it has taken us 40 years to get here, but we finally got here. And I, for one, am elated. Um, now, we're just getting started on this journey, but we already see EPA moving millions of dollars in grants that can look at these issues, that can reach community-based organizations, that can reach state agencies, local governments, that can really give people the resource to step up and once and for all address these longstanding inequities. We are seeing states being held to account. Other federal agencies are being pulled into this conversation because the Biden administration has set a high bar for everyone. It's a new day. And now we want to make sure that we see a change in conditions on the ground, but I, for one, am absolutely elated by the creation of this office. No, thank you for that. I mean, just to speak to the money, I mean, the new office is going to oversee a $3 billion climate and environmental justice block program. Just speak to that real quickly, Bernice. How well, much money do so, you think the, the office have gotten over the years? Go ahead, go ahead, Bernice. You know, that's it's such a huge number, $3 billion with a B, as Administrator Regan um, of the EPA said, again and again. But in the entire history of the Office of Environmental Justice at EPA, they probably have not reached anywhere near $1 billion. Mm-hmm. That's staff, benefits, resources, grants at the regional level, at the headquarters level, programmatic efforts, grant programs, everything they've ever done in the history of environmental justice at EPA up to this point pales in comparison in terms of financial expenditure federal resources dedicated to what they're talking about spending now and what they've already begun to spend 
in their grant programs, right? There's a hundred million dollar RFP on the street right now for a grant program. Um, Before that, there was a $25 million grant RFP on the street. And then other federal agencies are are moving other pots of money. It's a new day. Now, is that money actually going to reach communities? Is that money actually going to be able to inform and impact what's happening on the ground? That remains to be seen, but I know that they're working on that. And in addition to the $3 billion that EPA is moving, the U.S. Department of Transportation is moving $660 billion for transportation infrastructure. That's right. It's an extraordinary moment. And I just want to see that those resources get targeted to the places that have been most affected where the harms have been the greatest, where people are the sickest, where the level of contamination is the highest. I want to see the money get to those people, not be sucked into academic institutions or state or local government infrastructure, but actually reach people. And one example that I have of what we don't want to see happen is in an effort to clean up the Hudson River in New York, the state of New York, the city of New York and EPA allocated money to build a sewage treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant, the North River sewage treatment plant, right on the edge of our community in West Harlem, where I'm from in New York. And they spent $1.1 billion, billion with a B, to build that plant. Mm-hmm. $1.1 billion. Now, a lot of people made a lot of money. A lot of construction companies were able to retire off that one project, Right. And you could count the people of color of the hundreds of workers that built that plant. You could count the people of color on one hand. If that, and I'm probably exaggerating how many people of color there were. A lot of people made a lot of money and that was federal money for the most part. That's what we do not want to see. We do not want to see billions of dollars being invested in infrastructure. And somehow that money does not reach communities, nor does it improve the quality of life or the lived experience of communities. And that it's going to be a tough fight. I hear you. Listeners, think about the point Vanessa just made. You know, we, we talk about environmental racism in this podcast, about how you have these hazards and infrastructure put in communities of color, environmental class system, put in poor communities. It will be an environmentally racist act if that money doesn't get to the people with the most need, right? It'll be an environmentally classist act, as Vanessa is saying, if the money doesn't get to the people with the most need. The frontline communities should be at the front of the line, as Vanessa is saying. And Vernice is saying, just to summarize, you know, as y'all heard me say before, or you haven't heard me say this the first time you hear me say it, we have to identify, prioritize, and micro-target the communities that have been dumped on, that have been used as sacrifice zones, that experience an environmental slavery. You may not hear me say that before, but if I'm going to say it, environmental apartheid, y'all. So I just want to call that out. And Vernice, I want a question for you. You know, I said to somebody recently, man, this administration has done more to advance environmental justice than the history of administration since 1978. What do you think about that statement? The bar so low? That's a good point. The bar was really low, but that is an irrefutable fact. And I would just say this, as much as I love President Barack Obama, and I did, and as hard as I worked to get him elected president of these United States, and as proud as I was of the eight years that he served as president of these United States, in two years, Joseph Biden has done more to advance environmental justice and address systemic inequities and systemic racism that undergirds 
environmental injustice. He has done more in two years than every president up until the time that he was sworn in in January of 2021. People might be asking, that's a really heavy loaded statement, Bernice. How can you say that? Because the facts are the facts. The resources are the resources. The programmatic offices that are being stood up at the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of the Interior, US EPA, Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, and on, on and justice, on and on right? and on. And oh my God, the Department of Justice, that's a big one. How could I forget them? This is a new day and a new expression of these issues. And so I'm going to ask myself a question. Why do we think he's doing this? Well, I was watching a town hall on CNN. It, well, it was late in 2020. And it was in that interregnum period between the election of November of 2020 and the inauguration in January of 2021. And the town hall just featured Joe Biden. At the time, he was former Vice President Joe Biden, president-elect. And I think Don Lemon was the reporter and or the moderator. And he asked him, you seem to have a lot of energy and passion around environmental issues. Why is that? Joe Biden said, when my family moved from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Delaware, we moved to a, a city called Claymont, Delaware. He said, and in Claymont, Delaware, we had a lot of industry an active steel mill. And right across the border in Pennsylvania, there was a refinery, an oil refinery. And every morning when my mother would load us in the car to drive us to school, as the oldest child and the oldest son, it was my job to wipe off the windshield and wipe off the windshield wipers because there was a thin coat of oil on our windshield every single day before she could drive us to school. That was my job. That was my assignment. He said, so You don't have to tell me what it means to live in a place when people don't care about the people who live there, don't care about their lives, don't care about their well-being. I live that. Nobody has to tell me what that's like. And so I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that communities are treated the way they should be treated and they get the best environmental conditions that they could get. Now, I had heard Joe Biden say a lot of things. I'd been in rooms with him, been in events with him, and I'd never heard him say that. It was personal, right? Mm-hmm. So he lived in an EJ community. I don't know if yes, there were ma'am. people well in the EJ in that community, but he certainly lived in an EJ community and it's personal. The energy and the vitality and the resource and the intentionality that we see coming from this administration to address these issues is like nothing we have ever seen before. And so we have to lean in and do everything that we can to meet the administration where they are. And sometimes we're going to have to push them a little further, but I, for one, am ready to completely dig in and completely rise to the occasion and meet this moment because this is an opportunity to do some work at a level we have not had before. And we're all on the same page because we used to have to sue the Obama administration. I'm sorry to say, but we did. And there's still people litigating issues right now. And we always want to have that in our front pocket. But right now we're sitting around the table trying to figure out how to resolve these problems together. And I don't know that we've had a moment like this um, before. I don't know that we will see a moment like this again. But I know I've been waiting on this moment for 38 years, and I, for one, am ready to completely lean in. Y'all heard that from Bernice. You think about, again, how do you make your block count? How do you make your neighborhood count? How do you make your community count? We have to lean in. We have to collaborate. We have to partner. And this administration is putting their money where their mouth is. $600 billion transportation infrastructure, $370 billion 
in the Inflation Reduction Act. And so I'm going to come back to the, you know, this EPA office again, Bernice. Mm-hmm. You talked about the money. Mm-hmm. Then you have to, you got the staff. The office is going to disperse more than 200 EPA staff. You said yeah. it before to the headquarters across the 10 regions to finally start solving these problems, right? And then according to the EPA, these staff are tasked with the following, engage with communities with environmental justice concerns to understand their needs, as well as tribal, state, local partners, manage and disperse, as you said, historic levels of grants and technical assistance, work with other offices, work with other agencies to incorporate justice into their programs, particularly the states, right? Where the rubber meets the road. And then those things are law by law. And ensure the EPA funding recipients comply with applicable civil rights laws. What do you think about the staffing and that infrastructure going out into the headquarters, into the regions, into our states? So 200 people at the headquarters level, another 200 people across the regions, 12 to 20 people in each of the 10 regional offices who will be lifting up this new program office of environmental justice and external civil rights. Again, unprecedented. I think about three weeks ago, the people who are pulling together to to stand up this new office at headquarters had a celebration. And they asked me to speak at the celebration. I thought it was important to say then, and I think it's important to share with you this now, that there was a time not so long ago when you worked on environmental justice or civil rights at US EPA, that was where you went for your career to die. It Mm. was not a career building trajectory, particularly not working on civil rights enforcement was not a career building trajectory. But that it is now just shows how far the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction, right? Because this is the most talked about thing happening at US EPA. This is where so much of the attention is around how we're gonna reformulate how we address environmental injustices and inequities. That we're gonna make sure we're marrying the fight against racial discrimination and language discrimination, and origin discrimination with the fight to deliver equal protection before the law in terms of the environmental law. We're going to marry that for the first time in a completely intentional way. It's unprecedented. It's unprecedented. So now I'm interested to know how many people are submitting applications who either already work at EPA or who are trying to get into EPA from outside the agency? What's that flow of application like for people to work in this space? Because it was not where you went at EPA to build your career. If you saw yourself rising up the ranks at US EPA, you were not working in the Office of Environmental Justice and you were not working in the Office of Civil Rights. But today, it's a brand new day. I think it's extraordinary. And I think there should be integration with other program offices that people need to work better together. And I also think it should be a beacon for state agencies about how they could structure themselves and about the intentionality that they need to give to lean in on these issues because that money that EPA is putting on the street is not just for community-based organizations. It's for state agencies. It's for local government. It's for tribal government. Some of it might even be for the private sector to retool the way that they do business to you know, reduce emissions in their sectors, at their facilities, at their refineries, to make new kinds of cars that are not carbon producers. There's a lot of resource on the street. So it's going to be interesting to see how the energy changes, Dr. Wilson. It's going to be interesting. 
to see because this is a whole growth industry out here driving environmental justice. Think about it. Environmental justice is creating a whole new economy. Environmental justice is creating economic opportunity. Yes, indeed. But Bernice, this is a discussion for another day. I like to say there's gold up in them hills. I think there's also some issues with that too now. There's an EJ Gold Rush. Okay, we can talk about that on another segment. I want to get you talk about this budget again, right? Mm-hmm. What should be prioritized? You talked about a little bit, Vernice. What issues should be prioritized? And how should we make sure, as Charles, as the great icon Charles Lee would say, make sure we get meaningful involvement and meaningful engagement of those frontline fence companies, those most impacted, the most marginalized, the most invisibilized, the most otherwise. Those have been dumped off for decades, Vernice. How we mention their voices? are in this process to maximize the benefits for them? Well, one thing is to make sure they're in the room to help devise and advise what these programs could look like. Where's the greatest need? State agencies and and local government agencies need to be setting up tables where they're meeting with and being advised by experts, meaning environmental justice leaders, communities, residents, et cetera, on where the greatest need is, particularly around the infrastructure issue, because these communities have been bypassed for so long. People probably are not aware that there are still thousands of households in this country that do not have access to safe drinking water in their homes, that do not have access to sewage treatment in their homes. And I know it sounds crazy. This is 2022. What are you talking about? There's plenty of communities that don't have that most basic infrastructure that we all take for granted. When that money flows from US EPA through their Office of Water to improve water infrastructure, how do we make sure that communities that haven't had access to safe drinking water are at the front of the line? How do we make sure that the state revolving funds who are going to make the decisions and prioritize which projects get funded, how do we make sure that they're in dialogue with communities with the greatest need? And that they put those communities at the front of the line. There's so much money flowing out here. So much money that we don't have to choose as we have done in the past between this project versus that project. Because virtually every project can get funded. But why don't we start with the places that have been bypassed for decades? New drinking water infrastructure. New sewer systems. Stormwater mitigation. Flood mitigation. Replacing lead pipes. Why don't we prioritize those projects serving environmental justice, disadvantaged, communities of color, low income, tribal, poor? Why don't we prioritize those kinds of communities first? And why don't we invite people who represent those communities and who live in those communities to be in at a decision making table, not just a, a public meeting where you're telling people what you're going to do. And then you have a public meeting and everybody's sitting in the audience and there's no back and forth. I mean, a decision-making table where these people are sitting around the table with you, helping you to prioritize. Many instances, we know our friends in Spartanburg, South Carolina, they had to point out to the federal government where the hazardous waste sites were. They didn't even know that there were hazardous waste sites, open pits in their communities. If you want to find out what's going on, if you want to find out where the need is greatest, ask the people. And then believe them and figure out a way to capture them in that process and compensate them for their expertise and their advice. Don't just Mm. extract information from people. Make them part of the decision-making process. Don't just pay the consultants because I'm going to tell you, Sokobi, and you know I'm an environmental consultant. 
people are about mm-hmm. to get paid. I told you, each is gold up in the hills of her niece. There's gold up in the hills. But can we make sure that the money flows through the people whose need is the greatest? Who, I might add, are taxpayers. This is their money. It's their money. That's right. But the money never gets distributed back to the people who need it the most. We need to rechange the formula. We need to change how we prioritize where the greatest need is. We need to rethink all these places that have been bypassed for decades. Now, we know why people have been bypassed, mm-hmm. but if you're going to marry civil rights enforcement with environmental enforcement, then that says to me, we got to go and find these places that we have been actively discriminating against, or local and state government has been actively discriminating against. And I will say this just as a strategy, all the people who are listening and folks on the ground, we could spend months upon months upon months making the case with all kinds of data points about how we were actively discriminated against. We could do that, but I'm going to suggest that we don't have time for that. It's our lived experience. We know we've been bypassed. Let's spend our energy trying to figure out a productive way to sit around a table together with all kinds of other decision makers and stakeholders to figure out how to prioritize these needs and move this money and projects to places. And let's make sure that we have consultants and contractors and construction companies and engineering companies that are owned and operated by people of color and women to be the recipients of some of this money. Because I'm telling you, people are about to make their whole life's career, all the income they're ever going to need, building some of these infrastructure projects that the federal government is about to pay for. Join us for part two of our conversation on our next episode. You've been listening to My Block Counts. My Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceej.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.